I'm going to dedicate this morning's sermon to Bob McKeegan, who had passed away early yesterday morning from a lengthy bout with esophageal cancer. And to Donna and to her family, we send an outpouring of love and support like never before. And if you're listening right now, Donna, we just want you to know that we love you. It probably would be best if we kept our words short for the time being anyway, but it is our prayer and our desire that the peace of Jesus Christ fills you and your children right now. Well, as we have been entering into this time of remembrance and celebration of the birth of Jesus Christ into our broken world, We've been looking at the cameos of Advent that we find in the Gospels. Now, cameos are not the stars of the show, as we all know. They just drop in and out for about 30 seconds or maybe a few minutes at the most. But even though their role is very limited in the story, cameos have a very valuable role nonetheless. And what I find so fascinating about Jesus is that when he enters into our world, how the very first people who got to see him were not considered the upper echelon elite of their society. Jesus did not immediately appear to uh, um, dignitaries and luminaries. Rather, as we saw last week, Jesus is first seen by a bunch of shepherds with a fourth grade education. It's a bunch of animals in, in a hotel manger that, that get to see Jesus as he's born. Jesus born to a peasant couple living in abject poverty. Well, last week we read about the shepherds who were out in the field and they see Jesus. Luke chapter 2, we continue this morning and a month and a half has elapsed ever since that moment in the manger. In keeping with the Torah, Mary and Joseph have now gone to the um, temple in Jerusalem. Jesus is their firstborn son, and as according to Jewish custom, they have gone into the temple to present him to the Lord. And I know that's kind of a funny concept, isn't it? We will present the Lord to, well, the Lord. <laughs> And yet it is in this moment, though, where there in the temple, we meet two more people who make their cameos into the story of the birth of Jesus. And we get to see the arrival, the, the adventus, the advent through their eyes. Luke chapter 2, starting in verse 25. Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. And this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the Spirit into the temple. And when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. 
For my eyes have seen your salvation, that you have prepared in the presence of all of the peoples a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. And so as we meet Simeon, Simeon is a man who's introduced to us as being a righteous and devout man of God. In other words, Simeon loved the things that God loved. He hated the things that God hates. Whenever he would hear the words of life read aloud to him in the temple or wherever it was, everything in Simeon's world would just go away and take a back seat. And he would bow himself in reverence to the throne room and to the oracles of the living God. But what we know more than anything else about Simeon, though, is, is as Luke says, he is waiting and he's watching for the consolation of Israel. Now, in that word consolation, we can hear the word console. He's waiting for the, the um, consolation of Israel. It's a word which means one who comforts others and, and who gladdens their hearts. And to every single Jewish man, woman, and child, this is what they have been waiting for with bated breath. To all of these Jewish people, the consolation of Israel is just another name that is given to their Messiah, who, who in their own mind, it's just a matter of time before he comes. And yet, as all of us know the story, as well as how God works, I mean, God has sent prophet after prophet after prophet who's made promise after promise after promise of the consolation of Israel coming. And yet, generation after generation after generation have lived and died hoping and waiting with suspense for the consolation to come. Now, the reason why I know Simeon is an old man is because, again, I know how God works, and you know how God works. Because, with few exceptions, when God makes a big and a lofty promise, that usually doesn't come to fulfillment maybe a few weeks later, does it? In the book of Genesis, we all remember God making a beautiful promise to Abraham. He promises him that he's going to have a son, and it is good news of great joy. And yet for over 25 years, Abraham and Sarah are watching and waiting with suspense until they're, you know, he's 100 years old and she's 90. We come to the book of Exodus and God makes, makes a wonderful promise. He, he tells Israel, I'm going to set you free from Egyptian slavery and yet for 430 years, the people are watching and they're wailing and they are suffering in suspense. God liberates them from out of Egypt and now they're, they're in a wilderness. God makes them a promise and I'm going to bring you to a land that's flowing with milk and honey and it's good news of great joy. And yet for 40 long and agonizing years, they, they are circling the wilderness in suspense. At last, we come to the last Old Testament prophet, Malachi, who says that the Messiah and the consolation of Israel is going to come. Malachi dies, and for 400 years, God's prophetic voice goes completely silent. 
And for as long as the Israelites had suffered under Egyptian slavery, so once again God's people wait and wait and wait between Malachi and the manger. I mean, when we look at the Israelite people living in this first century Palestinian world, these are people whose great-grandchildren's great-grandchildren's great-grandchildren have been watching and waiting for, for the consolation with suspense. And when I think of Simeon, I think of a lot of various people. I think of one man who I saw once upon a time on a game show. I don't know if you remember the show I've Got a Secret from the 1950s. And yet I've Got a Secret was, was a game show where you would have a person come on and he or she would give various clues about something that they had once witnessed or experienced. You'd have to guess exactly what they were referring to. And yet when this particular man who was seated on the right appeared on this particular 1956 episode, he amazed everybody inside the studio as he revealed that what he had witnessed was the assassination of Abraham Lincoln. I mean, imagine being there in 1956 and hearing somebody not, not merely describing World War I or World War II, but yeah, I was there when Abraham Lincoln was shot in Ford Theater. He was five years old as, as he relays his story. He remembers hearing the, the gunshot blast in the theater, seeing John Wilkes Booth leap out of the box and, and wound his leg, and, and having um, initially thought that, well, oh, that poor man just got hurt. John Wilkes Booth. I heard about another woman whose name was, was Mabel Ball, where in 1908, she was born the exact same time that the Cubs won, won a World Series. And strangely enough, she died six days later after the Cubs won their very next World Series in 2016. From 1908 until 2016, she saw her team win two championships, once at the very start of her life and then at the very end of her life. As her son had been quoted as saying in um, her um, obituary, she waited and waited and waited for her team to win. And when they finally did, she could finally rest easily. That's a long time to wait for a championship. Many years ago, I was in a nursing home. I was ministering to a lot of the people in this home. Well, I sit down with this particular woman here. We begin speaking to each other. She has this very thick German accent. Still has a very sharp memory, but she's very old and she's very sick. And to my utter shock, she begins telling me stories about growing up in Nazi Germany. About the day where, where she was a little girl and she heard Adolf Hitler speak in person just maybe 200 yards away from her. And, I mean, it is a thought that I will marvel at for the rest of my, my days. You know, the opportunities that God gives us sometimes in life. I mean, just the thought that a person who remembers hearing Adolf Hitler wailing in the squares of 1930s Nazi Germany would one day of all people hear me speak to her about Jesus Christ. 
And three weeks after, I sat down with her and she took this picture with me. Helen had passed away. And I mean, in so many ways, this is who Simeon is. Simeon is a relic from a different time. He is a product of a a Jerusalem that hardly anybody remembers anymore. I mean, he remembers before the Romans came in and occupied Israel. He had very vivid memories of what that had been like. But in Simeon's case, though, unlike so many other people, God has made him a very unique promise. God has said, Simeon, I promise you that you will not see death until you have seen the consolation of Israel with your own eyes. And much as Advent goes in this business of watching and waiting, I love how one minister refers to Advent. He says, it's like being seated at a table by ourselves, waiting for our guests to show up. And yet the maitre d' comes and says, they're not going to show up, are they? And yet we just sit there and sit there and sit there and say, oh, I know that they will. I don't know when, but they're going to sit down with me soon. And yet... You and I also have consolations of our own. And I think really a danger is, as human beings, is that so often we settle for a superficial consolation. What I mean by that is that when Jesus had been walking the earth, people were were expecting Jesus to give them a much different consolation than what he had in mind. As Jesus performed miracles and he fed multitudes from from, um, loaves of bread and fishes, there were many people who saw him as Jesus Copperfield rather than Jesus Christ. In the Gospels, we find all of these people following Jesus everywhere that he went, but, but only so they could be entertained by yet another miracle, and so that Jesus could give them yet another free lunch. I find it very interesting how the very earliest Christian art was created by non-Christian Roman artists, where a Christian would come to a Roman artisan and say that I would like you to make make, um, a sarcophagus of Jesus for my loved one. And they would say, well, who is Jesus? I've never heard of this Jesus who you speak about. And so they would kind of give him a very brief description. Well, he could raise dead people. He went to a wedding and he turned water into wine and and so on and so forth. And so it's very interesting that in many of these early paintings of Jesus Christ and, and sculptings, a common place that we find is the appearance of a magic wand in Jesus's hand. Jesus is depicted as magician rather than Messiah. And I mean, in the gospel books, there were so many people who saw Jesus in this particular way. They just saw Jesus as this illusionist who was going to put on a show for them. But that is not at all the kind of consolation that Jesus Christ gives, though. I think about another example of this. I would say the main example of this is that as Jesus walked this earth in the first century world. Just about everybody from the shepherds to the apostles to Mary and Joseph, they themselves, 
saw Jesus as Jesus the Great. What they thought was, I mean, his name is Yeshua, Jesus. Joshua was one of our absolute greatest war generals. He marched into Jericho and he took the whole city from them. And so what this means is that Jesus is Joshua number two, Joshua the second. And he's going to swoop in and become this great war military general. He's going to raise up an army and he's going to conquer the Romans. He's going to to decapitate Caesar. And we're going to be all playing soccer with his head in the streets of the city. He's going to make us this huge, invincible national superpower. And yet, as we all know, this is not at all the kind of consolation Jesus Christ gives. Military generals live to conquer the world in bloodshed and in violence. Jesus came to die for the sins of the world and to undergo his own bloodshed so that we might live. Jesus Christ came in a time where we're to die upon a Roman cross. That was what happened to suckers and losers in their understanding. And the cross was the absolute last place that they ever would have imagined their consolation having come from. And so we see that their consolation had been far too small. Really, all that they wanted of Jesus Christ was, Jesus, just just liberate us from, from Roman occupation. And that's it. Just get the Romans out of our country. And yet Jesus has a far greater consolation. He came to liberate the whole world from sin and from death. I love how Frederick Buechner expresses it when when he says that, that once we have seen Jesus in a stable, we can never be entirely sure where he will appear or to what lengths he will go to or to what ludicrous depths of self-humiliation he will, he will um, descend in his wild pursuit of our souls. And sure enough, as Simeon stands there in the temple speaking to Mary and Joseph, he looks at Mary at one point and he says, Mary, very soon a sword is going to pierce your soul. And that's because one day that little baby in swaddling cloths is going to be wearing burial cloths over his mingled body. And that's the consolation of Israel. And that is the consolation of the whole entire world. And I fear sometimes in modernity, our consolation also is far too small. It seems like so often what our sentiment is as a national church is, Jesus, just keep me out of hell and give me a mansion over a hilltop when I die someday. And that's it, Jesus. Just keep me out of hell and give me a mansion over a hilltop on a golden street someday. And that's that's all I really want from you. And yet the consolation that Jesus offers all of those who have been to the water of baptism is is far greater than than just merely, I have rescued you from all of your sins. Really, the consolation of John chapter 14 is not so much mansions in in heaven, but, but his consolation for us is, I want you to be my mansions on earth. 
I want you to be those who bring heaven's joy and love and peace to every generation that will walk this earth. Well, one day Simeon goes into the temple. Just like all the other days that he has for for 40 years, 50, 60, 70 years perhaps. It feels like just any other day spent waiting in suspense. But then at last we we experience that, that magical moment in the text where we see a person weary in suspense as their time of waiting comes to an end. You know, it's one of the most beautiful moments that we find anywhere in history. It's one of the most emotional moments that we find. Where Simeon goes into the temple. And he's got faith in his soul, but all of these decades and you know, a lifetime of waiting and suspense are very evident on his face. He's weary. He walks up to a lot of people in the temple and he says shalom to one guy. He sees another man and he says shalom. Speaks to another person and says, may may God's peace fall upon you and may his face shine upon you. Sees another guy and he says shalom, shalom, shalom. And yet then all of a sudden he looks over here. And he sees this young peasant woman holding a baby in her arms. And the millisecond that he sees this baby in Mary's arms, his heart stops beating. His body turns to ice. His face contorts into this teary smile. Tears are now flooding his eyelids. And his laughter begins ringing out into the temple courts. And that's because after a weary lifetime spent watching and waiting for God to show up in suspense, Simeon has now seen the face of God. He's holding salvation in his very arms right now. I mean, this is something that goes all the way back to Genesis, where where God announces to Abraham, and and he points up at the sky and says, Abraham, count the stars if you can. Because as vast as the stars are in the starry host, and as vast as the sand is upon the landscape of the seashore, so how great will your descendants be? And now Simeon is actually holding the fulfillment of that promise in his arms. The consolation is now here. And now Simeon can now die in peace. And one day, as improbable as it might seem to us sometimes. Someday, like Simeon, we are going to see Jesus Christ with our own eyes. We're going to leave this world. And our world-weary eyes are going to open up in paradise. And the very first thing that our eyes are going to see is the face of God looking at us. And you know, when I pray early in the morning, even whispering his name in my office feels adequate enough. Just whispering his name with a heart full of faith 
lets me know that I am loved, that I've got worth, that I am forgiven, and that there really is a heaven. And this is where Simeon is as he stands in the temple. And then last of all, what we see this morning is, is the most powerful way that, that we can watch and wait. Because just after Simeon has held Jesus in his arms and, and he has seen salvation and he, he has held redemption in his arms, yet another person sees Jesus for the very first time. We read about her in verse 36. It says, And there was a prophetess, Anna, who was the daughter of Phanuel of the tribe of Asher. She was advanced in years, having lived with her husband seven years from when she was a virgin, and then as a widow until she was 84. She did not depart from the temple, worshiping with fasting and prayer night and day. And coming up at that very hour, she began to give thanks to God and to speak of him to all who were waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. So Anna is a person who speaks on behalf of God. And, and I mean, when Anna spoke, everybody stopped speaking and they listened and they hung on her every word. Anna is described to us as a widow. It appears that she became a, um, um, a widow very early on in life. It is a possibility that her husband may have been one of 12,000 men who had been slaughtered on, um, on a temple mount as the Roman occupation began. But what we do know for absolutely certain, though, is that even though Anna lost the love of her life in some way, God was the true love of her life. God was, was everything that she was living for. As Luke says to us here, Anna never left the temple. But night and day and day and night, all that she ever did was just pray and pray and pray and uplift other people and, and speak blessings into their, their life. I mean, she was just always waiting at, at the gates of God. And the reason why I admire Anna as much as I do, I mean, I, I hold her right up there with, with Moses and with Abraham. What is so incredible about Anna is that when, when we give all of our pain and trauma over to the Lord, this is where God does his most beautiful transformative work in our souls. Because like Simeon, Anna has spent her whole entire life watching and waiting by the gates for her consolation to come. And like Simeon, when she sees Jesus for the first time, her eyes well up in tears. And she announces to everyone within sound of her voice that, that all of you who are waiting for the consolation of Israel, guess what? Your consolation is right there. He's here. And in so many ways, she reminds me of, of, of um, Proverbs chapter 8 and verse 34, where, where it says, Blessed is the one who listens to me watching daily in my gates, waiting beside my doors. Now, originally, as Solomon had said this, he was giving his sons advice in life and instruction. 
And yet this is a description of Anna's relationship with God. She was one who had listened to the voice of God, watching daily in his gates and waiting beside his doors. So as we close this morning, I just want to say that whatever we are watching and waiting for in a state of suspense this morning, my greatest encouragement to us is be an Anna. Spend your your mornings in prayer. Spend your evenings watching by the gate of prayer patiently for God to show up in that circumstance. If we will be Anna's in this world, God is going to make us more beautiful than we could ever imagine. And yet even more important than even that though, what what I especially want to invite us all to in the days ahead is to be the consolation in the lives of others. It's to be those who console and and to be a quiet, soothing voice in the lives of those who are grieving. For the past couple days now, my, my heart has been very weary and it's been aching for our sister Donna. And I know that your hearts are sad this morning and that you are also aching with our beloved sister. And yet what I really love, though, as I look out at this beautiful church, though, this morning, is that God has given her a congregation of Annas. There are so many of you who have been pierced with the sword of widowhood, who knows exactly how it feels to have a spouse taken from you this early in life, or or even no longer there at all. And this really is the beautiful thing about Christ's church. Is that once we have been pierced through with, with all of these swords of, of death and adversity and pain. As we wait and as we agonize and as we watch with suspense. What is happening in the process is, is that we are given a voice. We're given a presence to show up in the lives of other people who one day will have souls that will be pierced through with the same sword that once upon a time had gotten us. And when we draw near to them, it's as if God is drawing near to them. And they will be comforted and consoled. And so as we navigate our deepest wounds together as a church, no matter what our our experience has been, let us be the consolation of heaven in the lives of one another. As we close, let us pray a special prayer for the McKeegan family.